Welcome to Up My Hockey with Jason Padolan, where we deconstruct the NHL journey, discuss what it takes to make it, and have a few laughs along the way. I'm your host, Jason Padolan, a 31st overall draft pick who played 41 NHL games, but thought he was destined for a thousand. Learn from my story and those of my guests. This is a hockey podcast about reaching your potential. Hello there, welcome back or welcome to Up My Hockey with Jason Padol and I'm Jason Padol and you're listening to episode 11 and episode 11 is going to dive into the world of officiating with Mr. Tom Cowell. Tom Cowell was a referee at the greatest level in the hockey world, the NHL, for 20 seasons and refed over 1,100 hockey games. Uh, he was a referee in the WHL back when I played with the Chiefs. He was there for 10 years in the WHL level. He also spent a couple years in the American League before he made his jump to the NHL. And we cover his journey as a referee uh, and what he's doing now, which is the officiating uh, development coach of referees in the Western Hockey League. So he's still involved in the game. He's still developing young refs. And we cover everything from the ref's perspective, from the linesman perspective, from the team that they develop together, the camaraderie there on the road, uh, their preparation for a game, uh, the communication skills that they require, the trust they have to build within the players and with the coaches, and really the growth and the evolution of them as people to do their jobs well. I think this is an overlooked aspect of the game. The importance of the refs to a game is paramount to to the vibrancy of the game, to the feel of the game, to the integrity of the game. And at the youth level, which I'm experiencing now, this is something that needs attention, that we need to give the referees more respect as coaches. And we have to teach our players to give these referees more respect. We cover that the retention rate is dropping. Tom thinks that it's harder now to be a referee than it once was. And uh, that's just not fair, especially for these young guys growing up. So we get into all this stuff. And I was really intrigued with this conversation, super curious about a ton of things. And, uh, and had a lot of like eye-opening moments here listening to Tom uh, get into uh, what it's like to be a ref at the NHL level. So without further ado, I know you're going to enjoy this, this episode. I give you Mr. Tom Cowell. All right, so welcome to Up My Hockey, Mr. Tom Cowell. Thanks, Chase. Thanks for having me. No problem, man. So Tom and I, just a little backstory. I was at a Kelowna Rockets game the other day and I looked up in the crowd and there I saw a friendly face and in Tom and, and I walked over and uh, recognized each other. And Tom and I go way back to Vernon days because uh, Tom's dad, Ernie, coached me way back, way back when. Probably in Adam, I think we were actually just talking about that, which ironically is the team, is the level that I coach right now. And and uh, Tom's dad was really an icon in Vernon Minor Hockey and has an award named after him and was just amazing with the kids. And he was one of those volunteers that, you know, continued to coach even when he didn't have any uh, of his own kids in, in the system and was really a, a model for Vernon Minor Hockey. And then Tom came up as a referee. And so here we are. I thought it would be amazing to, to, to discuss an NHL career from this side of uh, the black and white stripe. So thanks so much for being here, Tom. Yeah, thanks. And thanks for those kind words about dad, right? It's always, uh, it's always nice to hear those things about your family. Yeah, 100%. Um, so I, I'm so interested and so intrigued to talk about this because I have been talking about the player journey and I've been talking about what it takes to make it as, a, as an athlete on the, when you're shooting the puck. And now, and now I have an opportunity to talk to somebody who made it to the, to the highest level there is on the, on the officiating side. And, and I just want to 
talk about the parallels because I'm sure there is a ton. When I was looking up your, your bio, it said that you left home at, at 18. I was just like to start maybe back, even at the, like when you first put on the jersey, uh, the black and white stripes, like, was it, was it a thing to make a little extra money? Was there, was there a dream at that point that maybe this might go somewhere or uh, where did it all start? Well, it's kind of interesting when you look back on it, right? So I was around 13, right? And as you said, dad was involved heavily with minor hockey. And, you know, I, and I think at that time, they probably needed more referees, right? I'm not sure if he was president of minor hockey or, or not at that point. And I think from his standpoint, um, I think he thought that I needed maybe a lesson on respect, um, not so much in sports, but just in life. And, and I think that he saw all the, the good things that can come of being a young referee, right? So he kind of sold me a little bit on, hey, here's a good way to make some money at 13, um, as opposed to pumping gas to the gas station. So I, I think that's where it started. Um, but again, I, I, think it's, I think it's the thought that, um, and now as I've gotten older and seen the life lessons those kids can learn at 13, 14, 15 refereeing is I think was started and where my dad pushed me into it. Yeah. And what, what was your experience with it? Because I know now I knew we were going to have this interview. So, I mean, I, I've, I have been quite cognizant, I think, of how I approach the staff, the officiating staff, I mean, while I'm behind the bench now. One of the things that I talk to my boys about is character and respect and, and all those, some of those words that you already mentioned. And I think that a coach needs to model that the best that he can. And, and in the heat of the moment, you know, there's stuff being said and, and I try to be aware of that and especially aware of the age of the kids. But I mean, you must, you must have heard a lot of things that you didn't want to hear and must not have been treated very well when you first started just because you guys generally aren't treated very well, unfortunately. Like what is your recollection of that when you first started? Well, and I think it's hard, and I think it's it's funny. I was just in a meeting with the Western branches. We were talking about young officials and the retention and, and recruiting and how we lose them. And, and that's the problem is these kids go out and, and they, they get treated so poorly in, in situations by adults that we, we lose a lot of referees, young referees, early. And, and I think there was a lot of days, like I can remember, you know, we're talking this is, you know, I hate to date myself, but, you know, close to 40 years ago. And I can remember some nights coming home, as a 14 or 50 year old thinking, why am I doing this for? Right. And, and I think that I liked it enough and I liked a lot of things about it that you got through those moments. But I, I think it's it, it, quite honestly, it's a problem for us. Um, it's a problem for us going forward when you're talking about developing officials and not only for the elite levels, but for the kids playing at 12 and 13 years old or, or playing midget house or, or rec hockey. So, so it's an issue for us for sure. And um, you know, so I do have some bad memories, but I was lucky enough that I had a pretty good support staff there with my dad and with the other, you know, local referee in chief and people like that, that, that I, that I worked my way through it, but right. it, it's a problem for us for sure. Do you feel, because now you're in the development side and I, I, I'll touch on that in the introduction, but you develop WHL referees. Now you're in the development side of that, correct? Yes. Yeah. Yes. So when when you're dealing with that now at, I mean, that's not grassroots. These guys are, are, are pretty well tenured. A lot of these guys that are in the WHL, but at the, at the uh, minor hockey level, do you think it's better now or worse now? If you could, if you could point a finger to it. I think it's worse now. <clears throat> I think, you know, Jason, I think it's, uh, you know, so my son's out of minor hockey now, but I, you know, he came through 10 years ago. Right. And I thought it was worse then than I remember being on the ice. And maybe it's just because you're in a different role than as a, as a parent or, or, even when I was coaching him when he was playing, but I think it's worse. And, you know, and I think it's probably because um, 
the game is such a huge part of our culture. And, and I think there's probably, as you know, a, a false illusion by a lot of people where their child will get to. And, and I think that hockey's really become, um, I don't think it's elitist. I don't think that's fair to say, but it's become very expensive. So I think when people are putting that much money into programs for their children, and not just the minor hockey program, but the extra stuff they're doing off the ice, I think their expectation is a lot higher than maybe reality. And I think that's causing us a problem in hockey. Right, and just expectations with the games, and we feel that there's more there's more consequence on the line from something that's happening, whether it's their kid's ice timer or, or potentially a, a perceived bad call by a referee, and there's, there's way more emotion behind it now. Yeah, for sure. And, and, you know, really, I mean, that one bad call or a good call that's perceived bad of an 11-year-old player isn't going to affect where his career ends up. But that's – I mean, there's a lot of pressure on parents now too because of, because of their investment. And I, I think that we've gone too far for sure. Yeah, it's so interesting. And I think we are taking a step back from, you know, the grassroots. And I know that's what your dad was was all about, was about the the character side of the game. And, yeah, he liked to teach the skills and stuff. But I remember him as being – you know, do the right thing was, was the message, you know, and I think that we've kind of gotten away from that. And that's something that, that I personally am trying to bring back, you know, that you can be a much better hockey player if you can become a better person. And, and with that is learning how to win, learning how to lose, learning how to, you know, respect the referees and, and, uh, and really have a lesson with that. I remember I'll tell a little funny story that doesn't make me look great, but it wasn't, uh, it was last year. It was my first time behind the bench and I was coaching Hudson, my oldest, and we were at the Adam C level, right? So, you know, third kind of tier level, Adam, uh, nine and 10 year old kids. And we were at a tournament in, in Merritt and I thought I saw the puck go across the line in, in, uh, in the offensive zone, right? And I was yelling, I mean, I wasn't yelling at the ref, like calling him names. I'm like, it went in, you know, that went in. And so one of the other refs, it was a two man team was standing in front of the bench and he turned around to me and said, this is nine year old hockey. He said to me. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah. And I, I mean, I was self-aware enough to like check myself right then. I was like, you know what, this guy's a hundred percent, right? Like what yeah. am I, you know, I wasn't being rude, but what am I yelling about? You know, like, so from that point on, I really think that I've done a much better job in the last year and a half of just, you know, weather in the storm and I've have something to say to call the person over and just, you know, have a conversation about it and be respectful. Yeah. But um, I, I thank that referee uh, sometimes on a, on a weekly basis, because I do see how much emotion there is like, around whether it's parents or whether it's coaches and it's like geez you'd love to just sit them down and be like you know what are you, what is this all about and you know what yeah. example are you setting but what i want to take that back to you so you said you you had some stuff and we've we've talked in this on this podcast about adversity and i think that's a huge part of the game especially when you want to do anything right you want to do anything well you want to get anywhere there's going to be something that's going to there's going to be a bump in the road there's going to be things that are going to be disappointing and things that are upsetting uh, and it's a matter of how resilient you can be to get up. And I think referees definitely need a level of resiliency that a lot of us don't probably appreciate. What was it with you that you said you enjoyed something about that game or something about the position that allowed you to want to come back and do it more, even though you were taking maybe a little abuse and it was maybe uh, unfair a lot of the time? Well, I think in the younger ages, um, you know, that 16, 17 year age, I think there's a couple things. Um, I, I love the game. I knew obviously I wasn't going to be a player, um, but I loved to be in, especially, you know, you think back in Vernon when you were working Pee Wee or Bantam rep, who was called back then. So that was a good assignment for a young kid to get. So when you were working games like that, or I was working games like that, hey, there was still the, the excitement and the adrenaline to be a part of the game. And, and when the game ended, a 3-2 game, and say Vernon was playing Clodagh or Gallops or 
matchups there, right? That you still have that kind of excitement and adrenaline, right? Not, not the same as playing, but certainly very similar. And I think the other thing that always drew me to it is, um, you know, I, I love the team atmosphere of games, right? Of being on a team, right? And I think the one thing a lot of people understand is, is we are a team, right? Not only those three guys on the ice, but, you know, as I got older, then obviously our National League staff, but even in Vernon, there's a lot of good people that were involved. So, you know, you go to a rink on a Saturday afternoon and maybe there was a, a midget game before your game and there's three guys in there and then there's three games for the junior game afterwards. So I really enjoyed, and one of the things I miss now is I enjoyed that atmosphere of being part of the team, being in a room. And, and you know what it's like playing. It's no different on our side. When there's a little bit of adversity or the game doesn't go as well as you'd hoped or, I mean, there's, there's almost a bonding inside that room to talk about it afterwards, right? And I think those are the two things that really kind of drew me to it um, early in my career. That's awesome. Because I bet you there's a lot of people listening right now that, that don't, haven't considered that aspect, you know, that the linesman and the referee, that they are on their own little team, you know, and, they're, and they're, they're there for each other and supporting each other because, you know, someone makes a good call or a bad call on the line. I'm sure there is that in the room. You know, you, you probably discuss stuff, I would assume. Is, do you go in between periods at, at, uh, at the older levels and discuss how the play went and um, maybe what, what each other saw or, or, you know, rehash kind of events? Yeah, for sure. And I think it's a big part of it. And obviously it's, it's a time when you're in the room by yourselves, we can talk about where the game's going, you know, um, you talk about what you said to a player or talk about a play that you both saw, maybe saw it differently. So I think to go into the room between periods is, is a great avenue for us to continue to talk about the game and even self coach and, and even self um, analyze probably our, our, the job that we've done. So for sure. I mean, that's always the dialogue that goes on between periods for sure with us. Is there a choice uh, between being a linesman and a referee that is a conscious one that is made? Uh, or are you kind of assigned that, like, you know, in like the Florida Panthers said, you're not a center anymore, you're now a left, right winger or whatever, right? And so you go and do that. Is, is there a decision for you guys or you get told where you end up? Uh, there's a decision, right? And that's usually done like in your, your, your junior days, right? Um, and some guys like to try to referee and they're better linesmen. So, I mean, certainly some guys are guided towards which way they should go. Um, but certainly it's done early and then, you know, what it does is it allows you to focus on the one, um, you know, whether it be referee alliancing, like we see a lot of guys now working in, you know, through the higher end levels of minor hockey and into junior that are still doing both. Like they might be lining in the Western Hockey League and referee in Alberta, BC junior, right? Still trying to find their path. But typically by the time you're 23 or four, you've probably found the path that's best for you whether it be to pursue a pro career or an amateur career. And you kind of stay in that, in that um, side of it. And is it scouted? If that even is the right word to use? Like, so you said you get assigned by the Vernon, I would guess in your scenario, like Vernon minor hockey association says, okay, Tom's coming up. We're going to give him, like you said, the assignment of the rep Bantam Bantam rep, and he's going to then move to midget. Is somebody watching you at that level to, you know, to move on to whatever that move on is. Uh, how do you know that you're good at what you do and, and maybe there's a chance to move on somewhere else? Yeah, it is for sure. And that's kind of one of the meetings we we're in this week with, with the branches in it. And it's kind of like that. So it'd be locally like, so we'll use Vernon for an example. They would have a referee in chief, whoever's there now, right? Uh, Rick Harry Sr. was there uh, when I was there. And so then they would kind of promote you through and, and then they would promote you maybe into the valley, right? Where they start to move referees around at playoff time. And then what would happen is you would be kind of part of the BC program, right? And BC would kind of monitor your progress and move you around. And then as you get up into that kind of midget age, 
Um, certainly then you get kind of to the juniors would start to look at you. They have people that they, everybody kind of talks as they go through it. Um, for me now, kind of in my job um, in development with, with the branches too. So I'm in contact with the branches all the time and they would tell me the guys that are moving up in their programs. So um, great example. I'm in Kelowna the other day when I see you. The next day I stop at the rink in Camelot's and watch a midget game, right? So I know a young kid that's working. I want to see him work. Um, so, and then, you know, with my background in BC, there's a lot of guys that are still involved. So it's perfect. I can call a guy in the Vancouver Island and say, hey, I heard about Jimmy. Can you tell me what you think? So there's always somebody watching. And I even went to a game here last night to scout a kid working in Alberta Junior. You know, and we don't, we don't go in and see the guy, but, you know, I walk in and watch the last two periods and kind of have an idea in my mind where he sits in our program. So there's always, like players, there's always somebody around. Yeah, that's interesting. Really interesting. And do you think that, like, are most of these guys dialed in or do you, do you know that they want to pursue a career in refing? Like that must be part of the recruitment process, I guess, or the, or the evaluation. Is this guy doing it for a check or does he want to move on? Yeah, you do. And for sure. And then we, with our development camp, you can tell the guys that are applying or applying to the provincial camp. So you can, you can tell the guys that are invested in it for sure. Um, you know, and the one thing we always talk about, um, we do have people at our camps is, I mean, there's so few NHL jobs. I mean, whether you're coach, referee, or player. So we want to make sure that we're developing those, those kids to get to the Western Hockey League and have great Western Hockey League careers. But we know they're not all going to go to the NHL. But if we can get those, some of those kids through to international assignments or national championships, or there's a lot of avenues that we have that aren't NHL careers, but still provide tremendous opportunities and careers and travel. I mean, whether it be the Olympics or world championships or um, we just had a guy over in Austria working for a month to get some experience. So there's other avenues other than the NHL, but obviously that's the dream, right? Yeah. We want to make sure we're developing um, officials for both streams too. Is it competitive that you said that you're having a hard time with maybe recruitment and keeping guys in the, in the game is, is it still a competitive marketplace though? Yeah. Once we get them in and um, engaged and that's something they want to do, it's very competitive and, it, and it's, it's funny because it's a career where uh, we talked about earlier about being in a dress room, being a team and loving that aspect of it. But you're also competing with the guy sitting beside you. Right. And I guess you are in a player as well, but it's, you know, it's, it's a unique blend to go out on the ice and, and work really hard and become great teammates and know that you're, you're competing with that guy. But you know, the good, good teammates are cheering for that guy too. Yeah. It, can you describe it in that? Because for me, as you're analyzing that, like I can relate to it much more as a player, right? So if I'm a third line right winger, uh, I want that second line right winger's job. I want his minutes, right? I want to, I want to be better. For me, that's easy to understand, like whether that's, you know, work harder in my battles or maybe score some more goals or whatever that maybe would equate to, to me getting more minutes. How as a referee, do you outdo someone in, in the eyes of the people who are making the decisions? Well, I, there's a lot of components to it, right? I think in the game has changed, right? So I, I think it's pretty, the judgment now is um, obviously you have to have that aspect of it, right? And as the game ramps up, you know, are we picking in the right penalties? But there's a lot of other things that go into it, right? Um, you talked about character, right? You got to be a good person because to me, good people get along with people. And to me, officiating, a huge component is, of it is communication, dealing with people and, and dealing with heated situations. So you know, officiating isn't just going out calling penalties. It's being able to call the right penalties at the right time. It's being able to talk to the players and bring them back down when they're going too far without having to penalize them. It's being able to, to talk and get along with coaches. 
at the end of the day, the guys that really advance to the program, um, they have a way of having the players and the coaches um, respect, um, understanding, and, and willingness to work with them, right? So they're not always going to agree with them, but there's, there's a trust built in those high-end high referees. They built a trust in the game and a trust with the participants in the game. And though, that's how you kind of progress through it, right? And, and it takes time, right? And, and I think it's a little harder now with, with two referees on the ice because obviously when, when it goes sideways – we're going to go talk to the guy that we've seen for three or four years and know we worked the finals last year. We want to talk to him as opposed to the young guy trying to move up. So there's a little bit of a give and take there as well, but it's, it's, to me, it's that trust that you've built in the game. Right. No, that's a great, that's a great word to use uh, trust because I think that is, that, that is, must be a key component that communication skills that you touched on too. Like, I think that's, that's potentially overlooked by the common fan who's just watching you know, you guys skate around and, and call penalties or offsides, right? Like there's a lot of talk during a game that, uh, that generally isn't seen. I know from our side and how you said like talking players down. Um, I think the good ones do that too. Right. And that's, I think that's a respect factor from you to the player as well, instead of just, you know, giving them the 10, throwing them the guns or a two minute or whatever that you give an opportunity to diffuse the situation. Um, but that takes a level head. So, I mean, there must be, is that a personality thing or is that one of the things that you guys are, are trying to develop in these, in these young referees is the ability and the emotional awareness to be able to stay calm yourself within this really hard, highly charged moment. Well, I think it's both. And it's funny. It's one of the things I was working on a little bit this morning with some stuff to go out to our staff, but I think within your personality, I think, cause refereeing is a lot of personality. So we don't want to change your personality, but within your personality, we have to find the way that you can best communicate. Right? So a guy that revs really high, Sometimes we have to bring him down a little bit. Uh, we have some referees that are really low on the, on the personality scale in terms of where their emotion is. So we have to teach them sometimes to bring it up and, and how to bring it up and when to bring it up. And, and to do it and do it at the right time is really important. Um, if, you watch, if you just watched our guys work, um, the, the, the subtle, quiet conversations that we have maybe after whistle with a player, um, maybe over as the, as the back guys are waiting to drop the puck, I mean, those are the subtle conversations that we can send messages to, to players, to teams, and, and the guys that, that learn how to do that and do it successfully and also have that skill set to know when you've gone too far and now i got to step up and hopefully diffuse the situation without having to give a penalty. You know, and I look at our staff and the National League staff. I look at our staff and the Western League staff. We don't give a lot of unsportsmen or bench minors because we're doing a pretty good job at diffusing those situations. But we have to also make sure we understand when that line's crossed that we penalize them accordingly. And hopefully that coach or that team learns from it. And that's part of my role too when I go in to see the teams before a game, if we've had a situation like that, to maybe walk our way through it so that the coach and the team understands it and we're not all put in that position. But it's, it's a huge learning curve for young referees to understand um, wh when to raise your emotion and when to bring it down and when to penalize and when not penalize. Yeah, it's a it's a dance for sure. I yeah. can imagine. Yeah. Um, I read one thing that you left home to pursue your refereeing career at 18. That's super similar to a hockey player. What did that mean for you, and where did you go, and who who came knocking? Well, a little different back then too, right? And we don't encourage guys to move. Like I think, like same with players, we'll find you if we can. But you know, unfortunately, the Western Hockey League is we're spread out, but we're not everywhere, right? So when I was a kid or 18. Um, if you remember back then, uh, Calmus had a team and Victoria were the only two in BC. 
countless had a really good staff. Um, my dad always talked about school and the importance of that. And so the first year I left home, I went to Victoria as an 18, 19 year old. Um, Cause I knew there was probably gonna be opportunities there. Um, they were an older linesman staff. So I went down and I uh, took some courses at Wilson College and I got in as a linesman in Victoria. That was the year that uh, Victoria, or sorry, New West had moved to Tri-Cities. So if you remember back then, Al Patterson was their general manager. So Al and dad were buddies. Well, dad knew that the only way for me to live in the U.S. was to go down on a school visa. So he kind of said, hey, why do you go down? And there's the very few guys are working, right? You can probably work a lot more games, but you're going to have to go to school. So he kind of sucked me in a little bit that way. Um, so I went to Tri-Cities and I spent a couple of years there as a linesman and went to school and, um, you know, worked out good for me, right? I got some good opportunities. I got a lot of games. I got to work a final in 91, right, when the Chiefs won the Cup. Um, and and it, it worked good because it gave me lots of opportunities. I worked a lot of junior B in Spokane and some minor hockey in Tri-Cities, Wenatchee. And, you know, I was lucky, Jace. I, I was doing a good job as a linesman. Um, they were looking for more referees and they, the Western League kind of said, hey, why don't you give it a shot? So. I hemmed and hawed that year because the Moral Cup was going to Seattle. Um, but obviously it worked out good for me to make the jump to referee. And so. Oh, that's wild. When you say Al Patterson, is that the Al Patterson from, from Vernon that was part of the writing staff of the No, Vernon no. Daily? Al was um, uh, involved heavily with, with uh, BC minor hockey back then. Um, and he would have been the GM of Victoria Cougars at one point in time. Okay. Um, so no, we had totally different family. Right. Gotcha. Yeah, that's wild because you, I mean, I was in Spokane in the, when was I there? As I look at the wall, 91 to 96. I mean, I totally remember. I mean, you, we did a lot of games together. You, you were, cause you were in that area, I guess too, which made sense. So how much, how much ground would you cover there? If you were based out of Tri-Cities, would you get into Tacoma, Seattle, Tri, do Portland? Like, would you cover that whole kind of Northwestern states route? Yeah, as a linesman, because they didn't have any guys down there at the time out of Tri Cities, I would work. Uh, I worked a lot in Spokane, Tri Cities, Portland, um, and then the, in '92 when I started refereeing, um, then it kind of branched out a little bit, right? And first year you kind of stay in the West. Um, I had some good success, so by the second year I was going then into the East Division. But he certainly I worked a, a lot of games through that Tacoma area, Seattle, uh, Spokane, Portland for sure. What does it look like as a, as a crew then, or you individually, as far as travel is concerned? Again, I mean, I just know that the, the team tells us what time to be on the bus and you hop on the bus and you go to your game. Like, how does that work when you're doing lines or refereeing? You're not all coming from the same place, I assume. Are you taking your own car to places or how does that work? Yeah. And, you know, they would try to travel together, obviously, for a cost standpoint and all those other reasons. So, I mean, living in Tri-Cities, I would always be on my own. But coming out of Seattle, there was the years that I was there. Um, I always had two or three roommates that were referees or linesmen. So quite often we travel together. Uh, they might fly somebody into Seattle that we pick up and take with us somewhere. Guys coming out of Vancouver. So, I mean, it's, it is, especially back then, I mean, there was no cell phones or email or so it was a phone call to arrange everything. But, you know, we just kind of found our way through it. And we met at the Denny's in the side and road in Ellensburg or wherever we met. And we just kind of found a way through to do all that stuff. Right. Who else from from that era? Like, I think I remember, wasn't Has Hasn't France went on to a yep. to a pro career? He went to the NHL too, didn't he? Yeah, there's been a lot. Uh, Brad Watson, Brad Meyer, Kelly Sutherland. Uh, the area that you played, we had a lot of guys go on. Ha uh, Mike Hasn't France for sure. Um, there have been some lines with Lonnie Cameron, uh, Vaughn Rohde. We had a lot that I came through with, and part of that is the West. To me, back then and still today, does a good job developing officials. And it went from one referee to two referees. So that whole group, me, Hazzy, 
uh, Brad Meyer. We all kind of got hired, uh, Kelly Sullen, as, as jobs came up. There was an older staff at the NHL back then, and we went to two referees. So normally there's not very many jobs, and we, just, we were lucky. We hit at a time where there was jobs. So, so, yeah, that, so what an yeah, awesome. You would have a lot of guys. What an opportunity for you guys, right, with that, with that second, second job being opened up. How many, how many guys are there now since we're talking about that? How many, how many refs on staff in the NHL? Uh, well, it changed a little bit now with uh, Vegas in and Seattle Cubs. So 34 referees, 34 linesmen, um, so 68. And then the minor leagues vary a little bit. So they would have under contract, I think there are 10 guys down there now between referee and linesmen. And those guys, um, some are going to fill in NHL games as guys get hurt or get some experience. But, I mean, they're basically just the next level of their development, right? Working pro hockey every night in the American League and maybe a little bit in the NHL. So not very many jobs. That's wild, eh? 34, 34 yeah. refs. Yeah. Um, and I saw 1,106 games. That's super cool. Is that as far as, you know, I know a thousand games for a player is, you know, is a really huge threshold uh, that not many guys get to. Is that the same relevance for, for an NHL referee? Is a thousand games a, a really big number? I have absolutely no idea. Yeah. So, so I worked mine how many years ago. So I think I was the 22nd or 23rd to do it. Um, there's more coming now, right? We've had some in the last few years just because of that group that came in when we went to two referees. But a thousand's kind of the mark, right? If you can get a thousand or above, it's a pretty good career. Um, linesmen typically they get closer to that fifteen hundred because they don't spend quite as much time in the American League and, and that. And, and we went through a phase with the NHL where they were hiring guys a little bit younger, um, and, and I think that's gone away again. So a thousand is going to be a good mark for referees, and I think fifteen hundred is going to be a good mark for um, linesmen. Nice. Nice. Yeah. Well, congratulations on that. That's, uh, yeah, that's huge. Which brought me to another question is what is a typical season? Like, do you guys do the back to backs? Do you do an 82 game season? Like the players, is it more, is it less? Uh, how does that, how does that all work? So uh, it's and it changed a little bit over the course of my career and the different CBAs. Right. Um, but now it's 73 games for referees, 75 for linesmen. Um, but you gotta remember that that's on the road. Right, so my first part of my career, I lived in just um, in Springfield, Mass, close to Boston, right? So living there is a pretty good place. You know, I, uh, Boston, I get home. Three New York cities, I get home. And if I wanted to, I could get home from Philadelphia, Buffalo, Montreal if I was driving. So I was home a lot. Um, and then, as you know, in the East, I mean, everything's an hour flight to our flight. Like, there's so many places you can get to and get home. Uh, when I moved back out to the West here, it kind of added days onto my travel. So for living in the, in the West, typically you're – a good month, you're gone 18 days. A bad month, you're gone 22 days. Right. Times when you are sliding home, you're sliding home for two or three days, right? And maybe even picking up a game in Calgary, Edmonton. So it's it's a it's a tremendous career. Uh, I loved everything about it. As I got older and the kids grew up and you started to miss more and more, the travel becomes a bit of a grind. Um, you know, and I always saw it, saw it off in my mind that I was home all summer, right? So I spent a lot of time with the kids then, but it, it's a grind for sure. Um, it's important, and I tell young guys coming through and getting the business, it's important to surround yourself with good people. You know, I was lucky I married a tremendous lady that, you know, took care of things when I was gone and raised three great kids. So it's, you know, when you're gone 20 nights a month for six months, it's, uh, it's a grind for sure. Well, and you have that team that you said, but I mean, it's a small team and it's, you I mean, it's an isolating position. At least I see it as an isolating position. You know, like you're, you're in the middle of this 20,000 seat arena unbiased not on really on any side and you're you know you're traveling 
going for dinner and smaller. It just seems like it's, it could be a, a lonely spot um, at times. Did, did it ever feel like that to you or was it, or was it the close knit group that with the guys stick together on the road as you, as the players do? You do, but I mean, imagine the, that many guys, but you're all going different directions. So it's not like you go on the road for eight days and I'm going to travel with the same guy for eight days. Right. So you go for eight days and, you know, if you go down into Florida or California or, you know, pockets through there, right, you might stay with the guy and travel for a few days together. But a lot of times you're on planes by yourselves, you're checking in the hotels by yourself. And, you know, maybe there's guys coming that work the night before too, so you're all in and can have dinner together. Sometimes the guys are coming from home, so they're coming day of. Sometimes guys work the night before. So, I mean, it's you really have to um, be able to be independent in terms of how you travel and do things. And you have to be able to manage your time away from the game, whether it's with your group or alone, right? And right. I think the young guys in our career probably didn't always make the best decisions when we were on the road and, and doing those things. But it's one of those things, like you as players, you have to kind of learn how to manage your time and, and your days off and your sleep and your rest for sure. Right. Yeah. That's crazy. Uh, I love that aspect of it because you are on that exact same journey and that exact same grind, but maybe even a little more isolating, like not with a coach guiding you every day, right? Like you're, you're out there doing your thing um, responsible for yourself, probably more so than players are. And, uh, and maybe when you're in the minors, you're not where you want to be either, right? Like you maybe want that job in the NHL and you're wondering how long am I going to do this for? Am I going to get recognized? And you must, I mean, you're definitely battling all the same emotions and question marks as, as players, uh, but more so on an island is the way I view it. So, I mean, what a testament to you guys to, to do that and to have the love for it. And then obviously to get where you wanted to go is, is amazing. What, how does that work with the, because uh, age is relevant. I mean, you mentioned age a couple of times, and that was something that I never really thought about from a referee standpoint, but I do see it in the minor hockey league level, right? It's like even say with my nine and 10 year olds, like if we have a 11 or 12 year old referee and it seems like there is sometimes it's like, sometimes I'm like, geez, like we need to have somebody a little bit older. They don't, don't quite have a grasp on, you know, what's happening here right now or have the authority or the maturity really to, to handle what's going on. Uh, I imagine the referee system doesn't allow that either. Like to have a 25 year old ref in the NHL is probably maybe not even allowed. Is it, or, or is there a minimum age when you have to be there? Or how does that all work? No, there's not. And I, I think there was a time where they were hiring young guys at 23, 24 and having, and Brian Murphy's a great example. He's coming off the ice next week after 30 years, I think he'll be 53, I think, but he started at 23. Those days are kind of gone. I think they like the guys to be a little bit more mature um certainly if they got an education or something to fall back on is always good in case you don't come out of the american league but i i think when you talk about you know the pressure that is in the job right and and even the responsibility of of traveling by yourself and booking your own travel and getting to the rinks that as you get a little bit older i think it's important so yeah there are guys that started at 27 28 um i, I don't think you see it as much anymore um but that's kind of probably going to be the range um some guys are going to be in their 30s right and and it depends on jobs too. Or some guys spend two years in the American League. Some guys spend four or five. So, so now maybe your NHL career starting at thirty-five. Right. You know, that makes it a shorter window for your work too, right? So, um, but and, and they have to be careful too because I think that you know we all think we're ready to go at twenty-two or twenty-three, but you know there's a lot of things that we learn in life and on the ice those years from twenty-three to twenty-seven too. Hundred percent. And then I think there's just there is just something it, it built into us as people. I think that there is respect for somebody older you know or more respect where you have a little bit of reverence so I, I think as a 
you know, seeing somebody at 35 out there when you're 25, I think that just gives you a little bit of stature as well, you know? So I think that's, that's probably, probably a good thing that they do that. You mentioned that in fifties, like you got out at 50 and one, you have to be able to skate. You said, you know, is, is one of the yeah. things, but is there, is there now an upper age limit where they say, you know, that's enough or, or if you are still skating like the wind and you're in great shape, are you, are you allowed to ref for as long as you, long as you want or can? Yeah. And, but I think, you know, with this, with, you know, the guys 20, 30 years ago, they all went to 54, 55. Right. And the game was a lot slower and a lot, it was a different life back then. Right. And now the game's just so fast. I mean, guys are getting to, you know, into the fifties for sure. Right. 52. Right. Uh, the odd exception might get to 54. Right. Uh, Brad Watson, who was a freak, who could skate to 56, went to 56. But it, it's now, it's kind of that 51, 52 range. And they would never base it on age, right? They're never going to tell you that because for a lot of legal reasons, right? I raise yeah. into it a little bit. But I do think, you know, we all have that pride factor. But I think you start to realize when you get into your mid-40s, no matter what kind of shape you're in, your skills are going to start to diminish. So if you were a guy that was a really high-end skater and could position themselves well, you might go a little bit longer. Right. I was the guy that always had to work really, really hard on my skating just to have a career. So when I hit, you know, I finished at 50, 51 was my first year off the ice. It was time for me. You know, could I have done one more? Probably, but I'm just not, uh, it was the right time for me to leave. So I, I think it becomes almost like a player, Jace. There's a, there's a diminishing, diminishing skill set. And, yeah. and I think it's hard. I think it's hard for players. I think it's hard for officials. And I think if you're a guy that can understand it and see it coming and plan your life out and leave on your own terms, that's the best thing. Yeah. Yeah. Interesting. Because, um, I would think, I, I would think it's like a sliding scale because like your, your physical skills, I could see diminishing, of course, right. We, we get a little bit slower and we're not as strong and maybe our endurance isn't there, but with the refereeing aspect, and I mean, I guess if there's a parallel to as a player too, you mean you, you can get smarter and a little more wily and a little more mature with, with understanding the game so you did you find that like you kind of as you as you understood the game more the more you did it the more experience you got the better you were at that and maybe like the mind wouldn't be deteriorating at 50 but your your physical skills would be correct sure and you know what and what you find is as you get older and and your skill set changes you find ways to adapt so maybe you leave as the front guy maybe you leave a half a second earlier to create the sight lines that you need right and so you find ways to adapt but the, the crazy thing about the fishing world, and I, I never thought about it from the player standpoint, it's probably true there, is your peak mind years are right now. Like, like the things you've learned and you've got to your point, like, so this, this span right now, so I'm still working in hockey, my mind's better than it has ever been. But unfortunately, you don't have the other aspect that you need. So it's kind of like, you're, you're right, your mind just keeps getting better and better and better, but there's a, you know, it slides this way a little bit. Yeah. So, you know, and you look at the guys that are staying involved in the game. Brad Watson's working with the National League a bit. And their minds are so good now. They just can't be on the ice anymore. So it's kind of a funny aspect to it. Right. Yeah, interesting. Um, I was just thinking about that development aspect. And so we had, uh, we had a guy. So we just lost in quadruple overtime in the league championship. Yeah. Uh, so it was our big banner. We had a chance to beat Kelowna. And, and it went to four on four. And then it went to three on three. And, and of course, there was this situation where... We, we had one of our guys in from the blue line. He got tripped from behind. The guy who tripped him lost his stick. Uh, the, the referee put his arm up. The guy that lost his stick never actually touched the puck. Um, I'm just going to break this all down for you. So, so he blew the whistle without having the other team have possession. We would have had a two on O in front. So he ends up calling a tripping call, which 
which was fine. I mean, it definitely could have been a penalty shot, potentially, if he chose not to. And then off the ensuing, ensuing face-off on the power play, I now saw this on tape. I never saw it at the time, but he gave a cross-check to one of our guys that I, that I still didn't see. So now it turned into be a three-on-three. As it all turns out, the guy that had the penalty for the what could have been a penalty shot scores the game-winning goal coming out of the box, right? Yep. So is this a sequence of events that, you know, I, I would think as a referee development, like, do they, do they get a chance to see that, like, and to talk about that situation? Because I could, I mean, it was charged, right? I mean, like you said, it's a, sure. it's a league championship game. I know it's nine and 10 year olds, but I could tell that that guy could feel the gravity of the situation was trying to do the right thing, of course, yeah. you know? Yeah. Um, and, you know, I mean, I, 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 if I was from the development sign and not biased, I would think that he did get it wrong. I mean, I think he would do, if he were to do it again, he would do it differently. How is he able to reflect on that now as a referee or who's there to guide him or to talk to him about that situation? Was there, would there be somebody in the crowd, do you think, in, in that scenario that's watching him? I, you know, certainly in every region, it's a little bit different, right? And it's based on manpower, that. But certainly that's one of the goals of, um, even like I've been talking about that meeting we had, is, is games like that and kids like that get seen as much as they can. So my hope is there was somebody there that could go in and we'll kind of walk them through that process and say, hey, listen, so think about they never touched the puck. And, you know, it's funny. And I think it's important that you talk about those things is, is there's, and obviously this is overtime, so it's even different, but there's moments in games and, and there's calls that are made. And it's, it's not just this scenario in this second of time. I mean, look at how that one call now went on to the next call. Like it all kind of connects together for certain periods of time. You know, like, so let's say that we, we see a trip and we decide not to call it, you know, and now eight seconds later, there's a, big elbow that we have to call. Now the team that should have been on the power play is shorthanded, right? That's a huge swing in a game and you have to be able to connect those dots and talk about them. So I, I, and I think BC actually does a really good job in terms of their development. So those kids do get seen a lot, right? And, you know, it's like anything else, they're young kids and it's a development process. And, mm -hmm. you know, the one thing you never want to happen is in important games like that, but unfortunately it does. But I, I would hope that there was somebody there that day and, and would teach the, the young officials for sure. Yeah. And I just think, I mean, that's where I have gotten to as a coach is like, I, I, and you really have to understand that these guys are just trying their best and they're learning and they're part of this whole process. Right. And, uh, and even at the best, at the highest levels, you're not going to get it right. That's the human nature of the game, you know, sure. like there's going to be time. So I don't know. I think just having that patience, having that respect, having that understanding that, you know, no one's out to get you. No one, yes. no one wants you to lose, you know, like everyone's just doing their thing. And sometimes you're maybe going to see it one way and they see it another and so be it. But I did, I did think of that. I reflected on that thinking, geez, I hope this guy has an opportunity to see the tape and, yeah. and not, and not from me being, you know, sour grapes, just the fact that like, it'd be a good learning opportunity. That's a, that's an interesting situation that he might not even be in a situation like that again, championship final and overtime. Yeah. Like, I mean, that's a big opportunity for those guys, right. Uh, to yeah. see about themselves and how they react and what their emotions are like. Um, for sure. Let's talk a little NHL, if you don't mind, like boy, a thousand games. Like I was just thinking even with that, I mean, you work, you work with enough guys for long enough, meaning players, meaning coaches, you're human. There's going to be guys you like and guys you don't like guaranteed. How do you monitor that to be as unbiased as you can in a situation? Is there like a, a preparation that you go through? Um, maybe even like, let, let's maybe start a little earlier. Like what is your preparation as a referee before a game? Don't even get into that. Maybe that first part of the relationship side, but how do you get ready for, for a game? What is the process for you? 
Well, I, I think it's probably no different than the players go through, right? I think it, a lot of our stuff, obviously you got the physical, physical prep you've done, right? But I'll give you the typical day of an NHL referee. So let's say that you're in the city the night before, so you're not traveling. So you get up, you probably have breakfast, probably together with the team if you guys are in, right? Um, typically our guys would spend some time in the gym. Uh, the older guys, sometimes they like to just go for a, a walk or whatever. You're doing something physical in the morning, right? You'd always kind of come together for a lunch, obviously. And then the afternoon's kind of yours, right? Then there has to be a mental preparation, right? You have to kind of get yourself to that spot where you're ready to work. Um, I was always a guy I liked to have a nap in the afternoon for an hour or so. Um, and then, you know, I love getting the rink early, right? And being in the room and that, that time in that room is so valuable because it's just the four of you and you're talking hockey. You're going to talk about teams involved. You can talk about the players involved. I mean, nowadays with social media and everything, I mean, you've seen everything that's happened the night before for the team. So nothing should catch you off guard. So I just, that, that time in that room to kind of go through and get yourself, whether you're, you know, riding a bike or going for a little run or whatever you're doing. I think that's the time for me, I always kind of found to bring me right to where I needed to be at seven o'clock. And is there, with you saying that, is there homework? Like you're sitting in that room, do you guys like, is there a formal process where you guys get together and break down a team or what, who does what or what you want to watch for uh, or be aware of? Or is it just try to make it as much of a blank slate as you can every time you go on the ice and just call what you see? No, I think you do the preparation of the teams, right? You talk about um, the linesmen would be different. Obviously, they'd be talking about centers and the guys that are hard to deal with and how to work with. And um, you, you'd even be talking about style of play. I mean, now with no center red line, there's teams that, you know, we're going to stretch it out. So our positioning has to change a little bit. And from the referee side, there would be, you know, is there animosity from, you know, is it Philadelphia, Pittsburgh playing? So we know it's revved up a little bit. Um, did something happened in the game before. Is there players we need to watch? Um, coaches line change. Anything we have to, anything we have to be aware of. So when we walk on the ice, nothing should catch us off guard. And even now as the games evolved a little bit, you know, style of play, like I, I talk about with our Western League guys, there's teams that'll win that draw in the end zone in their end zone into the corner. And as soon as the puck's dropped that the, ins, uh, the inside winger, he's gone. And we're just going to ice the puck and hope that we win the race. So we as a referee have to be aware of that positioning and it's different site linesmen too. So there's a lot of pregame intel that, that we do ourselves. Certainly sometimes in the NHL or, or in the other leagues, there might be a supervisor or a coach that's going to guide you through that process. But there is a lot of dialogue about those two teams in that night in the dressing room before the game. Gotcha. So there is like, yeah, you're doing your thing just like the teams are doing. You're preparing for the other team. You're preparing for both teams and trying to be as prepared as you can for what you're going to see. Now maybe that's a better segue into like, so how about the personalities? Like you said, your linesmen are talking about centermen that, you know, maybe are trying to cheat or, or whatever they're doing off the draws. There's going to be, there's going to be captains that you're going to get along with and probably captains you don't and guys, you know, are squawking and chirping. And how do you, I'm sure that is part of it. You, you don't want to be biased. I mean, that's kind of the whole idea of, of the nature of what you do. Um, yet it would be easy to be biased. How do you, how do you handle that aspect of the personalities and the preparation for that? Well, and I think it's part of maturity is getting older and understanding people. Yeah. I mean, you, you got to find ways to deal with everybody and communicate with everybody. Right. And there's certain guys in every team, uh, uh, there's certain guys in every business, your life that you're not going to be able to get along with. Right. So you do the best you can, you find a way, um, and maybe it's just not going to work with certain players, right? But there's always avenues. So, you know, there's like, I won't name names, but there's a kid that I can never get along with. Coach is a pretty good guy. Captain's a pretty good guy. You could always, when you got to that point where you couldn't communicate, you couldn't get any farther, and you couldn't get your message across, 
could easily go to the captain and say, listen, I don't want to be in the spot where I'm going to have to step in here and give this kid a penalty, but so here's a chance. Can you fix this for me? And I think what it does is it diffuses the situation a little bit. And, you know, the good leaders on that team, they know what this player is about, right? So they're going to deal with them. And, and if they don't, then you have to maybe step in and do your own thing. But I think a lot of times you can take this back to the, the good teams and the good captains and the good coaches. You can go, listen, I've had enough of that guy. You fix this or I'll have to. And the leaders on that team normally will take care of it, right? Gotcha. It, and, that's, and that's a growing that, – that's a personal growth thing, I assume, too, because there's – I mean, there, you guys have egos just like anybody else, right? And to, to one, maybe ask for that help is, is probably a learning curve. Um, I would imagine is, yeah. is it not like to, to, sure. to think yeah i can't I, I can't do this i mean and, and then but it's okay to ask for help i think that would probably be part of a part of the learning curve and then how about the aspect of sorry is, is that ever maybe sorry is the wrong word but the humility or the vulnerability to say guys i got that one wrong like did that ever come into your repertoire or was that something that you guys are you guys taught to be able to say that or, or is that something that shouldn't be said i think it should be said yeah i sit to our guys so much like all the time like like if you're standing every night, then we got to talk about the job that you're doing. But listen, we're human and we make mistakes. And, and very rarely in the course of my career, when I made a mistake, I didn't know it at the time, right? So you can't always do it right away. Sometimes you got to do it after a guy comes out of the penalty box and say, lucky they didn't score on that power play, right? For, so for sure. You know, and as the game evolved a little bit, you know, and now we as referees, we watch all our games on TV the next day on the plane. So you've looked at all your penalties anyhow. So if you're seeing a team back-to-back, and, it, and it's a high-profile one, it's not just a trip or a hook. It's a high-profile house, high stick or a goal interference. You know, you're going to go over and say, hey, you know what? I was wrong, right? And I, and I think it's, it's funny when you talk to, like, the, the coaches in our league, down in the Western League, especially the guys that have been in the NHL, uh, the coaches. They like that. They, it shows a human side of it. And the other thing it does a little bit, I, I think, is it builds that trust we talked about earlier. It, it humanizes us a little bit that we're not, we know we're not perfect, but when you can humanize yourself a little bit to the teams and the players, I think that helps. So I, I think when we're wrong, you gotta absolutely tell me wrong. Yeah. I couldn't agree more. I mean, and that's only just from a, you know, from a personal standpoint, but I remember as a player, like when a guy, I mean, if you, if you won't tell me that you made that thing wrong and it's almost, and then you're betting heads on it, like that just would just drive me nuts as, as a player. Right. And as a coach, I mean, same thing. I did the same thing with my players. Right. I'm like, guys, I'm not right all the time. I mean, if I, if I'm making a mistake uh, and I'll apologize. And I think that does, it does give you that level of humanity. Right. I think that trust is there. I, I think it makes, it just makes, I don't know. I, I think it's more approachable and it's an easier environment to be in when you know that that guy doesn't have to be right all the time or be presumed as being right all the time. Um, yeah. And I think there's ways to do it. Even when you like, there's, there's, there'd be times where I, I still believe I was right. And, but to, to say to a guy is you're wrong. I'm right. I mean, what does that accomplish? Right. I mean, there's a way to say, listen, from my sight line, uh, I, I have that as a high stick or whatever the play is. Right. So you're not, you're not telling the guy he's wrong, but you are telling him you think he's wrong but you're doing it in a way that makes them go, okay, well, I, I can see your point from where you are. So there's a way to guide that conversation to not just say, no, you're wrong. And I think it's important to learn that side of communication a little bit too, right? Anyone, um, any big name guys that you would want to talk about that you just thought handled themselves with class that you, that you enjoyed being around on the ice that you felt 
I mean, whatever the right word is, privileged, honored to be able to referee a game with them involved. Any guys that were highlights for you? Well, I think, you know, if you start talking about good people and good good uh, ambassadors for the game, there's all kinds. You know, you could, again, um, Sidney Crosby, those guys are all respectful, good ambassadors. Um, you know, things could get heated, but there, it never went too far. And they're, they're good businessmen. And what I mean by that is they, they're a guy that can work nine to five and do everything you have to do and be mad. And at 501, they're like, hey, you want to go for a beer? You know, they were the guys, and not, I'm not just those two. There's all kinds of those. Um, when I look back in my career, the ones that really stick out for me is, you know, as a kid, when you're watching those guys play, and now all of a sudden you're on the ice with them. Um, you know, the Gretzky, the Lemuse. The one that always sticks out for me is Mark Messier. You know, he just, uh, he treated everybody with class. He had so much respect, and the game had so much respect for him. And um, one of my favorite stories uh, and I was young in my career. And back then we used to work preseason games in American League buildings. So he was with the Rangers and we were working in Providence. Boston was playing. And Providence for the Boston team was running around a little bit. Had some kids playing. And I think Messi just had enough one point in the second period. Had a fight in front of their bench. Never said a word. Got up. Looked at the Boston bench with that. We're done. We're not doing this tonight. Uh, I don't think Boston hit anybody the rest of the game. But just to see a, a guy like that that had so much respect from within the game, but treated the game with so much respect was, and, and as a kid growing up watching him, um, those are pretty cool experiences for me. I believe it. And I, I mean, I can relate to that as a player. And I've said that on this podcast, that was one thing, unfortunately for me, that I never had a chance to necessarily get over. But when on NHL ice, playing against Mary Lemieux, which I had a chance to do, and Wayne Gretzky, being on a line with Matt Sundin, like, I, I was still like, are you serious? Like, I'm here. I'm like, I'm, I'm a peer, right? And, uh, and so there's that as a player to get over that if you want to be there for, for a while. And, I, and, a, and as a referee, I mean, again, it, it's interesting because I've always had this, that one tractor view of, of it from a player's position. But from a referee, it would be the exact same thing, maybe even more so because now you're having to talk to these guys in an authoritarian kind of way, you know, call penalties against these guys and feel comfortable doing it. Was there a... Was there a learning curve for you with that to be able to step into that spot? Oh, for sure. And especially with the big, the big names like those, you know, the Messi's and the Gretzky's for sure. I mean, it's an intimidating position to be in. Uh, it, it is to begin with when you're young and, and there's guys playing that you've seen, but it's different when they were tremendous NHL players, but they weren't that, you know, hockey gods basically. So it for sure. I mean, as a young guy to come in and experience that it's, I mean, there's some work with your confidence and your, it's a it's a very unique situation right yeah for sure and there's a vetting there's a vetting process I think for rookies I've talked to some guys you know like where you sometimes there's a moment where guys are like they, they finally feel like yes I've arrived and I belong you know like whether it's an event or something but like there, there'd be a vetting process from the players to new refs I'm sure especially with the older guys like was there ever a point where you where you did feel like this is it, like where maybe somebody g gave you a word or, or, or I don't know, like what could have happened on the ice, but where you just felt like you had the respect of some of these guys and, and that you were in the right spot? Yeah, and, you know, I probably can't pinpoint one, but I can pinpoint several occasions where a conversation with a, with a senior player or, or a veteran coach or something, and you could tell in that conversation, right, and I'm a big believer of using names, right, and maybe they used your name or or – but there would be some controversy, but you could tell that they weren't over the top pissed off or mad. You could tell that they were understanding what you're saying 
and they had a level of respect for you. And I think once you started to fill out within the game, I, I think you progress as an official, but I just, there's a, you start to feel that trust word again. Right. And you kind of start to feel that, Hey, I'm accepted a little bit. Right. Cause early in your career, uh, you know, so you work a game and, and say nine guys that you work the Western league with are playing in it. And maybe some guys who just come up from the American league, those guys almost feel the same way you do as young referee. So it's funny. Those are almost the guys that you're talking to, right? And you're talking to them because they're comfort level for you. But a lot of those guys are talking to you as a referee because you're a comfort level for them. So it, it just kind of evolves over time. And then, you know, you look like a Ginla. So he went from being that guy, you know, in Canloops to through with my career. So now he slowly becomes in the leader role in Calgary. So having that long-term relationship with a guy like that, that just helps you with that whole team and that whole staff, right? Yeah, that's what an interesting perspective, because that's totally true. I mean, they, they're not your peers, but it is it is your, you know, who you're familiar with, essentially. Yeah. And I guess it is your peers, but just not on the same, uh, you know, not doing the same job description, right? But you yeah. you knew Jerome, just like if I would have been there wrong, or you'd have known me, and I would have, you know, yeah. it would have been, hey, Pod, say Tom, you know, like, and yeah. you're having that discussion, which which does make it more comfortable, because you're not just dealing with the Messiers and the, and the Gretzky's and sure. all these big names, you have your familiarity yeah. there. That's cool. Um, oh, there's a recently there was that big scenario with K K Cassian and Kachuk, you know, about a month ago now. Uh, this big buildup, kind of, it was almost something that would have happened every weekend uh, 15 years ago. But it was it was a big deal for this modern era of hockey, and there was a lot of buildup in the sports channels. And George Peros came to the game and. If you're working that game and you get assigned that game, what, what is that game like? Like, who's talking to you? Is there any difference? Um, what's the buildup like for something like that? There's a vibe for sure. Um, sometimes there may be even a change of assignments, right? If there's a young kid in it, just to make sure it's the right staff in it. Um, but there's, there is a vibe to it for sure, right? And those guys are talking to you. Normally on that side of it, uh, George is there now, right? But uh, certainly Coley would be involved in that conversation probably too, right? Um, and I think, you know, in a lot of those games, in a lot of those leagues, um, even back in, in years ago, it's a lot of hype. And I think nowadays with everybody there kind of saying, hey, let's not go over the top. I think that we prepare over the top sometimes for games like that because a lot of times nothing comes of it. You know, so in, in that game, that Edmonton Calgary game, what happened is exactly what should have happened is Kachuk stepped up and did the right thing. Right. Whether his dad told him to do it or not. Right. But he did the, he did the right thing. He did what he had to do to continue on and have a good career. Right. And then the two other guys fought their um, Hopkins and whoever fought. Right. Mm -hmm. Really at the end of the day, then they just played. Right. So we put it out of the way. So, but there's a, there is a definite vibe and kind of a bubble in your stomach when those things are going on. Right. So, right. It's exciting though. Right. It's nice. It's just not sure. an average February game. Right. So, and probably like secretly, maybe that's not the right word, but you, you do want to Chuck to do that, right? Like you're probably hoping, Oh, I hope this thing gets over with early because yeah. I don't want this thing to run out and who knows what's going to happen here and have some maybe Bertuzzi more incident or something like that sure. that nobody wants to deal with. Right. Yeah, for sure. It was the right thing for, I think the way it broke down and I think Cassim accepted it. I think it, it came out of that, the perfect scenario. Right. Do you see, I, I know I've talked about it a little bit before, like one of the things that I identified with and I was really proud of as a hockey player and rightfully or wrong was that it was a really hard game to play. If you wanted to be a guy to, even as a goal scorer, right? If you wanted to score the extra five, seven goals a year and stand in front of the net 15 years ago, you were going to leave with some 
bruises. You're going to be taking shots in the back and, you know, guys were going to be coming at you. And it was, there was a fear factor to the game that I don't see as much now, right. To, to go to that dirty air in front of the net. Like there's, I don't see guys having to pay that price. Um, that might just be me being a dinosaur, but I, I see the game being played differently now. And also it's being ref differently. So the, the segue to you is like, do you, do you see that as well? Like, do you see that there's less net front battles? Are they not allowed to, to, to do that anymore? Uh, like, where do you see that? How does that, how do we get to what I remember the game being to now it not looking like that? Like, how does that evolution happen? I agree hundred percent with you. I, I think the game's, I don't know if soft is the right word. Cause it's still hard to, it's still hard to compete. It's still hard to have a career, but it's, it's not like it was before. Right. And I mean, those battles in front of the net, they don't even happen anymore. And, and I don't know why, like I ask the question sometimes to coaches, like, you know, are, are we teaching our guys not to engage in battles as defensemen? Are we allowing them to stand there and because they're blocking a shot or whatever, but I, I, I'd love to see the game get back to a little more physicality. I, I think that the game I look at it like this. I think there's there's all kinds of skill that you have to have to play in the NHL. I think one of those skills is hitting. And, and I think that we don't have that skill as much as we used to. And I don't know if it's because we're not teaching at the younger ages and teaching it to do it the right way, where guys aren't, you know, we don't want to steamroll guys to get back to those, eight, those days where we're running people through boards. But I still think there's an element that we should have in the game. Sometimes I wonder if we're not teaching the kids how to hit and a lot of times I wonder if we're not teaching them how to take a hit, but I'd love to get back to more battles in front of the net and more. Like I love the skill too. I think it's fantastic, but I, I, I like the game was played with a little bit more of an edge. Like I was telling you, I watched a junior A game last night just to, to watch young referee work. And, and that game, it was game six in the series was, was on the edge. Like, you know what I mean? Like it was, there was battles along, like there was, and they, and the referees did a good job. They got them right to that edge and they brought them back. But, it was so entertaining, right? And I'd love to see us to get back to that a little bit more. Um, I'm just not sure how we get there. Yeah. yeah, I agree. I went to a game in Vancouver with my boys. I hadn't been to an NHL game in a while. And it was last year. I've been to a couple this year that were a little bit different. But I, I remember being in the third period and I, and I looked at, at Hudson. I'm like, and, and I was actually just shocked. I just finally, I was like, was there been a hit this entire game? And like, and I started watching like, like wingers. I mean, I was a winger, right. Taking a puck on a half wall in their own zone back to the play, you know, pick it up off the boards and like nobody touches them. Right. And in a completely vulnerable position. And it was just, I, I started to watch that more and I was like, wow, like that was the, one of my hardest jobs to do was to do yeah. that. Right. And now I'm to do that without having anybody have a fear of anybody hitting me that changes that component <laughs> quite, quite dramatically, you know, and then that front battles, like you say, and, um, the hooking and holding, I think, is amazing, and 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 that tri that evolution as a referee to be able to understand what is a hook and what is a what is a you know on the hands. That must be a quite a big learning curve for you guys to to transition from something that you knew to be one way and now to be another. How does how does that message get delivered that this is now not a not a penalty or this is a penalty now? Yeah, it changed a lot, didn't it? Right, like. Yeah before like when you played we we're arguing over whether that was a punch in the head was a penalty or not now we're arguing whether that stick in the hands is a penalty so it's for sure it changed the whole it changed a lot of your thought process for me it was hard because i was i was a guy like let them play a little bit but always got the dangerous stuff for get them right to the edge and brought them back so you had to learn that okay so that little hook in the hands which to me is a softer uh, i'm not sure it's a penalty even today but it is today so you kind of had to change your whole mindset right to say okay that 
and and then you'd have to kind of you have to walk yourself through a little bit to say why is it a penalty? Okay, there's a little bit of a consequence, right? And you know now we're talking. You know the guy the guy gets hooked a little bit and he's got to readjust to get back to the puck. It's a penalty now. Where in the old days he still had the puck, so it's not a penalty. So there's a whole thought process that kind of had to change. And then I think with you know the young kids coming in and everything else, then you got to teach them different sight lines because I mean. Imagine back in the day when there's one referee and you're chasing the play all the time, looking from the back. Well, I can't tell if I got hooked the guy in the hands or not, right? So unless he's water skiing or throwing him down, it's not a penalty. Well, now that sight line's from the front. So now you know exactly where that stick goes. So it's, it's kind of changed the whole complexion of the game, which is what they basically designed it for coming out of the lockout in 04. But it, it's a whole different uh, – I, I laugh sometimes when we have some older coaches in the – like the Don Hayes of the world, right? And, you know, we're talking about a hook in the hands, you know, and Don and I kind of laugh at some points going, yeah, right. And we understand why it's a penalty this today's age, but boy, it's sure changed, right? Yeah, it's changed. Which brings me to the next point, because you, you're talking about that, that fine line. And I think GMs are having a hard time with it. Um, coaches are having a hard time with it because the playoffs is how I think it, it's the perfect blend right now in my mind, right? So you still have the speed, you still have the skill, but yet there's, there's an edge to everybody. There's more physicality, there's more battles, but it seems to me like the rules change a little bit. So like, what, what is a penalty? Like that, maybe that little chintzy one on the hands that we're talking about, like that doesn't necessarily get called in the playoffs. And I'm not sure if that's right or wrong, or if you should even be able to, to say that they, they change, but it does seem like what is allowed uh, to happen changes and now guys that are more physical guys that can be more physical guys that maybe are all skill can are, are a little bit f more fearful so like the whole dynamic of the of the whole game changes i think in a good way but from a referee's perspective do you do you call a playoff game different than you call a regular season game i think it's way you answer your own question because you talk about the game changed and you always talk about the officiating changed and it, that'll always be a conversation uh, i'm not convinced it does I think it probably does a little bit, but I, I think that we, what we don't talk about is the players change. They change the way they play, right? They play a little bit more aggressive. They play a little bit more maybe on edge. At times they play a little bit more discipline. It's a whole completely different game. So, you know, you hear that all the time that all refereeing changed the playoffs. Well, the game changed in the playoffs. So certainly the refereeing has to adapt a little bit. And then I think probably there is a little bit more pressure put on consequence. Whereas, you know, in the regular season, there's not always quite as much pressure on the consequence. So I think at the end of the day, you're, you're trying to, for 82 games, create a standard of play that the, that the players understand. This is our line, right? And you can't go over it. Now that line might shift just a little bit come playoff time, but I think the players understand that for the most part too, right? Because we still want a consequence. But I, I do think a big part of the perceived changes of referee in the playoffs is that the game changed. Right. It's being played. Yeah, that's an interesting perspective. Uh, I, I like that. I wish I had a little more time to metabolize it. But because I do know that I've talked on the on, like I said, the GM side, like the, the coaching, the development side where you're trying to architect a team. And there is that, like, there's a full on full disclosure discussion about it. It's like, is this a regular season team? Or is this a play, playoff team? Or is it a hybrid team? Kind of right? Because yeah. these teams and, and maybe last year is a good example or not, but I mean, like a team like Calgary that was small and skilled goes five games and they're gone, right? Tampa Bay, 
untouchable and then all of a sudden they're gone right like couldn't necessarily adapt so like you're trying to you're trying to architect this scenario where you think okay these guys can get her done in this different sort of style of game in the playoffs but can we even get to the playoffs if we architect that team before we're in you know so they they're trying to manipulate a roster to make it work because um because like you said the game does change the physicality of the players change and 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 guys are asked to do different things because of it and I, and I think that some of those teams and some of those players that when it ramps up and there's different things expected and now, you know, the competes a little bit heavier, right? Uh, and you're a guy that now is getting hit every time you touch the puck where you only did in 12 of 82 games. Mm-hmm. Sometimes those players don't react and play at the level that they had in the 82 games because, you know, not that they're soft, it's just a different game for them and they're, you know, maybe we're doing the game an injustice and playing that way for 82 games and then changing the game, right? Right. Do you remember, is there any scenarios that you felt that you didn't have control of or anything that was like so supercharged, like any any moments in your career where it was it was like, holy smokes, like what what's going, what's going on here? Yeah, you know what, I think over the years, and certainly more in the past, but there's 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 times where you've, and when you first into it, that happens the first time you feel like you've lost everything, right? And you're just, but over time you recognize that, you know, think of some of those games you played in like Spokane, Tri-City, Spokane. There was nights where like I, I was doing a good job and I was doing everything I could, but I, I could only do so much. And yet you really had to recognize those nights that, okay, I'm going to do everything I can. But when this goes sideways and all six guys are fighting, I'm just going to stand back and make my notes because you, there's nothing you can do. So there's for sure some nights where you eat. it's, you know, and you know what, probably over the course of my career, there's probably some nights that were out of control because of what I had done to, right? Because we all make mistakes and learning curves, but oh, for sure, there's, you know, and I try to teach that to the young guys and we don't have any fights or, or line brawls anymore. And when they happen, our guys don't know what to do. And I just keep saying, nothing you can do. This isn't your fault. Step back and, and understand that this is not your fault, right? And do the best you can, but oh yeah, there for sure, there's a few nights where you just go. Right. So that, that's a great, that's a great example though. Spokane Tri-Cities. I remember the one year we played them in counting exhibition 23 times. Yeah. Like, do you imagine 23 yeah. times playing that team? And like, and that was back, you know, that league was tough and yeah. uh, those teams were tough and boy, that was never a dull moment in Boone street barn and people throwing yeah. beer on you and everything else. And it was a little bit hairy uh, from a, from a referee's perspective, I could just imagine. I mean, that would be a different level of preparation going into that too, because you know, you know, you're stepping into the lines den there and just trying to yeah. trying to keep it on the rails the best you can. I, I assume. Yeah, and you know what? But you also look at it like so that that was if you were getting those assignments, especially back in the one referee system, if you were getting Tri City Spokane, that was probably back in your day that one, and maybe Moose Jar Regina a little bit. But I don't think anything ever ever compared to Tri Cities Spokane, like in. <laughs> Great. I mean, now Kelowna counts maybe a little bit, but if you were getting those games, that meant you were doing a good job and you're having a pretty good season and career, right? So right. when the schedule came out and back then it came in the mail, right? And nothing on email. And when you open it and you saw you had those games, you, you, you circled them, right? Probably like you guys as players circle those games. You were so, you couldn't wait for that day to come to go work that game. You knew it was going to be a shit house and you're going to have to do work and, but you knew it was going to be fun. Right. Yeah. yeah that's cool. Um, one thing I just thought about, like during those times, like when things are maybe coming off the rails and, you know, again, relating now from a coach and from a player side where the coach would take that opportunity to have that time out, right? We have that time out. Okay. Now we got to clear our heads, you know, take a second here, take a breath. You guys don't have that ability. 
you mean there's TV timeouts now and stuff, but like, is it, do they use the, those timeouts for that? I mean, to bring the team together and try and, you know, whatever, reflect, get, 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 get back to, to whatever it is that they want to get back to. Is, is there, is there an ability there to, to take a pause and take a breath for, for refs? Yeah, those timeouts help, right? Especially when the games are heated. Because what it does is it allows two referees to stand together and kind of maybe, again, walk yourself back a little bit and get back to where you need to be. It gives you the opportunity to talk about what's going on, right? And where you're at and we have to watch, right? So those kind of moments and you get a, a little bit of time just with a teammate, right? So it, those are important moments for us, right? Whether it be like a lot of the junior leagues now are using one timeout for the radio or whatever you use it for. But that... 40 seconds or 90 seconds are pretty important times for sure. With the two referee system, if you're not seeing things the right way, I shouldn't say the right way, equal, like the same way, let's put it that way. And, and that could definitely happen. I, I'm, I'm sure more times than not, uh, your, your feel for the game might be a little different than his. And uh, when do you guys, is that like between periods where you'll have that opportunity to maybe try and discuss. So you guys are, are on the same page doing you know, seeing the same things. Yeah, for sure. And I, and I think there is, I mean, I, I look at it like the, the, the levels of like our judgment or whatever are, I look at it, they're close, but they're not exact. Right. And I think what has to happen is the game evolves that night. Um, you, you're not going to all see the same penalties because there's times you're looking at different spots anyhow, but when you are looking at same things from different angles and you got to make sure that we're adjusting. So that the back guy say, okay, that's our standard, right? We're a little, that might be a little bit tighter or looser than I would, but hopefully in recognizing a play in the other end that you, in your eyes is very similar that we do the right thing for. Right. So I think it's important. We have those conversations because as you said, and as you know, as a player is our standard is always going to be in this range, but on any given night, we want it to be in this range. Right. So you got to kind of adapt a little bit. And sometimes I think part of it is, you know, the senior referee making sure he's talking to the young referee about what we're doing and not doing. And then I think as you get closer to this time of year and then into the playoffs, making sure that, that um, you're, if you're the officiating coach or, or signer, however you work it, that you're putting the right people together. So you're not the guy that calls four penalties a night with the guy that calls none, right? Let's try and work together to make sure we're putting guys in the ice that are working well together. All right. There's some chemistry there. Cause that's obviously important. Um, from a, are your guys' salaries public? I, I, I never did look it up. Is that is that something that? Um, I'll tell you if you want. I, I think they are probably right. Yeah, be the range. Um, and I guess I don't. This this is a new CBA this year, so I don't really know this one for sure. Um, the old one referees is based on a yearly scale would be, let's say they start probably maybe a little under two and would go to about four or sixty. Um, and there'd be some bonus money in there, right? And certainly all the benefits of pensions and different things. Lines been them off a little bit, but I'm guessing they're probably 140 to 300 in that range. And that when you say, so that's like tenure kind of status. Like if you're 15 years in league, you make more than somebody who's been in league three years. That's yeah, it's just a scale. It would be a scale that eventually it's caps out at 16 years. So at 16 years, you're at the top of the grid and then your, your raises would go every year. They wouldn't go across diagonally. Right. Gotcha. And would, and as far is that more like if you're doing a better job, however, you guys are, are evaluated, does that get you any more money? Well, you've get in the playoffs, right. And that's pretty subjective. Right. But no, I mean, as far as it's just our salary, their salaries based off of a grid for your service. Gotcha. Interesting. So that's a heck of a nice paycheck too, to, to do something. So there's, it's, 
it's a good career, great career if you can get in there. Yeah, and I think, you know, it's an ICS, even in guys coming in now, like it is, but it's a short career, right? Yeah. You're going to work. But that being said, I think if you're smart with your money and you, you know, you invest it or whatever you do with your money, you're going to be fine. It's the guys don't invest it and just think it's going to be there forever because it's not, there's not enough. Right. Best if you're smart with your money, for sure. You can have a nice cool. with it. I'm going to end with two questions here, Tom. We've already been on R15. I really appreciate your time. Um, awesome. I'm so interested in all this stuff. But one, you guys have numbers on the on your back. Uh, I never, I mean, I realized you guys did. Is those are signed or do you get to pick them? And what are they, what does that 32 represent to you? Um, you get to pick them. So they went from, there's a lockout years ago when the guys had names in their number or names in their back and they went to numbers after it, right? And I'm still not, I'm sure the reason. So so when I came in, um, basically they gave me, um, uh, I picked you pick three. So, and at that time, the range for young referees coming in, was in the thirties, right? So I went 34, 33, 32 in that order. Um, basically dad was born in 34, mom in 33 and 32 was the last number left. And <laughs> so I got 32. So at the end of the day, there was a time as um, numbers changed, I got older, I could have changed it, but I was, I, I never did for, so 32 never really had any real significance. Yeah, that's funny. That was like me going into uh, camp, and they would just give you some. You know, it, the, the less relevant you became, the the less the less great yeah. number you got. Right? It was kind yeah. of funny. Um, and the last one, I guess. So you, you I mean, you were your first year. I think was ninety nine, two thousand, right in the NHL. And uh, I started ninety eight with them. My first game was in yeah the next year. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and then ended up playing. Geez, what was it? 15 when was your last year how many years were you in NHL, i've been off right? two so i was 20 years in the national league for 20 years so 20 years what uh could you pick your top three players as far as like from the standpoint of watching not necessarily just character but who who like who wowed you out there who, who's who's the most memorable performer i think over time right um certainly i think when i first came in I think Messi stuck out for me. I mean, Gretzky was obviously great. Lemieux was in and out a little bit there with his illness, but certainly there was nights for him for sure. Um, and I think when Crosby came in, right, I think obviously unbelievable player, right, and to see his growth and how he grew up as a man and those things for sure. And a lot of other guys that would be close in that equation, like even the Getz last and those guys. But And then I think in the past five or six years, I mean, I don't know how you could ever um, – McDavid, obviously, the pace that he plays at. What amazes me at McDavid is, is obviously, he's the best skater in the league. Well, there's a lot of guys that can skate pretty close to his tempo, but to be able to skate at that level, to be able to have hands that can match that level, and then obviously a brain that can match that level, I mean, it's easy to say. We're all going to give you McDavid's answer today, but to, to be on the ice and see him and just how he could go from standing still to, like, top speed in, in such a short period of time is amazing for sure. Yeah, that's super wild. So you saw, so you were there for my, like my hero, Mario Lemieux, and that was through his Hodgkins and came back yeah. from that was like almost three points a game when he came back. Yeah. Like, was, do you think he'd be better or worse? I shouldn't say worse. Like, how do you think this, this game with, without having been able to hook Mario Lemieux? Like, I just remember a guy skiing all over him. And the yeah. only time he drew a penalty was if he fell, right? I mean, there was two, sometimes two, three guys on him. Yeah. Um, to me, he was just such a beast. Like, I envision him like just ripping the league apart right now if he was allowed to play in it. But what, how do you see it? I agree. I, you know, I think he's obviously he doesn't have that, the, the McDavid pace um, and the game's different, but I, I just like, he's so smart, right. And so strong. And with guys not being allowed to hook or hold him, I mean, I, I just think he would be through the roof. 
I, I, there's a couple of great clips that mm, circulating on the internet lately of him on a breakaway. With you, said two or three guys like hooking him like from the blue line all the way down, and he still scores, right? So I, I think it's see what a guy like that. I guess I'd equate him a little bit towards the Malkin in terms of being strong and those. But I, to me, he's a better player than Malkin is, right? So yeah, it'd be interesting to see him play. No kidding. And I guess the last one would be just from a coaching standpoint, we didn't get into coaches very much, but I know that you guys have a relationship with them on the ice and build them over the years. Was there anyone that uh, gained your respect from, from your 20 years in the league that you just thought knew how to do things right and treated you with respect and, and the players on the ice? Uh, there's a lot for sure over the years, right? And uh, a lot of really good people, right? And some are back in the West thing now, but the one that probably surprises a lot of people when I answer like this is John Torah. You know, when you see John on TV, you think he's a hothead, he's a yeller, he's a screamer. Um, he is, but he's also that guy that has, you know, he, the thing I love about John is he could get mad and you could tell him to go F himself or whatever you want to tell him. And he'd tell you the same thing. And it was over. It was literally over 10 seconds later. It never carried on for the rest of the game. And, and if you saw him after the game, if you saw him in a hotel, um, I mean, the ultimate respect. Um, I mentioned Brian Murphy earlier, who was retired that year. They just worked 2000 games as a linesman. Well, Columbus played, and they're both U.S. people. And John Tortorella spent more time in the room before the game just talking to Murph, not about hockey, but about life. But John Tortorella is one of those guys that sticks out for me, for sure. Oh, that's awesome. Yeah, I had Brad Larson on on the podcast earlier yeah. and uh, had nothing but good things to say about him. And and a lot of people are saying that, you know, there's not many players that have anything bad to say about him because he, he takes care of his guys and he respects his guys a lot, you know, on, on a human level, on a person on a person level. And, uh, and what he's done there with that Columbus team or I mean, and his staff, but like, I mean, as hurt as they have been this year and how close yeah. they are to making that playoffs is uh, obviously a testament to what a great, great coach he is. And, and it's great to hear from guys like you that say he's a, he was a good guy to deal with as well. So yeah. awesome, Tom. I know we could talk for absolute ever. I know there's so many stories that you have locked up in there that we could be getting into, but uh, I really love going through that whole journey. Like the, you know, the perspective of, of the NHL, what an important aspect it is and, and how relevant it is to the game and how much more we should respect these guys. And, and that's one thing I'm trying to do as a coach with my young players is make sure that we respect the referee and respect their calls. And, and I think if we can, if we can have that be more of a message at the youth level and make it easier on you guys to, uh, you know, to do what it is you do, it will be, will be better for the system, better for hockey, better for us as people. So I'm on, I'm on your side. I'm pro referee now, Tom. <laughs> that's awesome. Well, I certainly appreciate having me on. It was great to talk about small times and great memories and uh, uh, anytime I thoroughly enjoyed it. Awesome. Thanks so much, buddy. Have Thanks. Take care. Cheers. Yeah. Thank you so much for listening today. Thank you, Tom, for being with us today. Uh, that is a conversation that, man, I'm just so glad that I was able to have. There were so many moments for me personally during that interview where I was wowed by my perspective shift because I hadn't thought of the game through that lens, the lens of the official and how they see it and how they prepare for it and the challenges and the adversity that they have and, and you know what they're trying to accomplish. And uh, I think that anytime we can have a new perspective, when we have a greater awareness of the sport that we love uh, and be able to see it through different eyes, that it is an advantage to us. Now we can give these people more respect, the respect they deserve, the patience that maybe we should be granting them. And also just to be a little more 
humble and a little bit more generous and a little bit more sensitive to these young officials that are doing the best they can out there on their weekends to try and make this game that we love playing and we love participating in the best that it can be. I know that there are times that we all get a little bit revved up, that we all maybe see a different call than the referees does. Boy, if we can do a better job of just being self-aware to recognize that, hey, these guys are doing the best that they can. These guys are developing too. They're they're trying to become better referees and they're doing the best that they can. And and um, to 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 model that for our young players is a really a great start point for us. And and to really promote uh, the world of officiating because without these officials, what do we got? We got nothing. We don't have a very good game. So I know that I'm trying to model that. I know that I'm trying to get my players to respect that. And I and listening to Tom's story and and. Uh, and hearing hearing his journey and, and what it took to become that NHL referee and the skill set required, I know that I gained a lot of respect for the position. So uh, thanks so much for being here today. We continue to bring great guests from around the hockey world with new perspectives and new ideas on, uh, on what it takes to become great at whatever it is you want to do. Uh, so until next time, thanks for listening. Keep sharing, keep promoting, and uh, make it a great week.